On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino thespian Vic Diaz. On this episode, we'll be discussing Sirio H. Santiago's post-apocalyptic action classic, Equalizer 2000, from 1987. Welcome to Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me, as always, is the Wasteland Wanderer, Doug Tilly. What's going on, Doug? Hi, Liam. Uh, very happy to be talking about a movie that didn't destroy our soul. Uh, that is a reference to the fact that we are now uh, currently recording the second of a two-episode block of Cinema Smorgasbord, mm-hmm. and our previous one was a rough go, Liam. So no yes. matter what, and actually in real life, this is the order that I watch the movies in as well. Same. So, uh, So it might be that... Uh, my feelings on the movie that we're going to be talking about today are, you might got to take it with a slight grain of salt, because I was just so happy not to be watching the previous movie that we were watching. <laughs> it's strange to say that a low-budget, post-apocalyptic film, which has glaring uh, continuity issues, which we'll discuss in a little bit, uh-huh. was was a breath of fresh air. That gives you a, an idea of uh, you know how bad the last thing we talked about was, but... Uh, before we dive into what was a, uh, let's call it a mixed bag that gave me joy, let's talk about this genre. Because, Doug, this is firmly in what is a surprisingly um, prolific genre of film, uh, the post-apocalyptic movie. Now, I've previously referred to these movies as Mad Max ripoffs, and I think that sure. that's unfair because while Mad Max is the most obvious example I think you get it to the point where people aren't even just ripping off Mad Max anymore right they're ripping off the other movies that were ripping off Mad Max you know like there are so many layers and this is such a common genre especially in uh, certain kinds of European markets let alone stuff shot in the Philippines that it's become its own thing this whole post-apocalyptic world where something has happened usually nuclear holocaust Sometimes yep. other stuff, too. But all of society has crumbled, and now all we have are guns, cars, and leather. Uh, Doug, how do you feel about these movies, and do you have any favorites in that world? I love them. I do. Yes. I don't know why. I think there's something about the idea of it sparking. Like We talked about this a lot with with um episodes of our different podcasts about Italian movies, right? How, how like, the uh, Poliziotesky movies were, you know, kicked off by The French Connection and Dirty Harry, that huge successes can have these reverberations. But part of the reason that Mad Max had such a reverberation, and I'm going to go back to what you were saying, which is just not that it's just Mad Max, but the reason that Mad Max did was because it was a low-budget movie that was this international success, and people saw it and was like, all you need is a desert. All you need is a rock quarry. All you need right. is a few cars that you you tape some stuff onto, and suddenly you got a post-apocalyptic uh, stew going, baby. And that's what happened in Italy. That's what happened in the Philippines. That's what happened in the United States. I was watching a movie a couple of days ago, Liam. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Cherry 2000. You ever seen that movie? No, I've seen the trailer, but I've never seen the movie. 
is from the director of the movie Miracle Mile, which is a great movie. And Cherry 2000 is actually pretty terrific as well. It is post-apocalyptic, but it has a lot of really weird stuff going on. And it takes the opportunity um, of having these kind of wide open spaces to do some really interesting visual stuff that you don't normally see. I really enjoyed that. It was my first time ever watching it. But when it comes down to the kind of of post-apocalyptic movies I enjoy, they tend to be those wild Italian ones from the mid-80s, like 1990, The Bronx Warriors, 2019, After the Fall of New York, 2020, Texas Gladiators. Those three in particular, because I always get them confused with each other. (laughs) But things like The New Barbarians and stuff like that, there was just a real run of those movies. A lot of them have American stars in them, uh, which is something that we're going to deal with in this particular movie, uh, and are meant to all take place in the United States, even though there's definitely that kind of European bent to everything that's going on. And they they also tend to be very, very violent. They tend to have a lot of gunplay, a lot of laser weapons. Like you were saying, not just Mad Max, there's usually elements of Escape from New York is a huge yep, influence yep. on a lot of these. Star Wars sometimes plays into it. I feel like Star Wars is actually an influence on the movie that we're, we're going to be talking about today. But also just kind of the general Reagan-era gunplay movies, you know, uh, that, that were... Schwarzenegger's and your Stallone's that were huge in the 1980s. Those, of course, play a part in it as well. So it's these kind of mashups of all of these popular elements, and they're filmed in these kind of wide open desert spaces in these post-apocalyptic sci-fi worlds. I, that, man, I love it. I love them even when they're terrible. I love them. And uh, I have to say, I went into this one with kind of fairly low expectations because I haven't watched a lot of the Filipino set post-apocalyptic movies. And I had a little trouble visualizing that, you know, that it was going to be able to encompass a lot of those kind of cliched elements I most enjoy and those other titles that I mentioned. But uh, it does. You you can do it. You can make these kind of movies in the Philippines. I think I, I think we've seen a lot of Filipino movies because of this podcast, Doug, that have focused on the jungles or yes. the forests of or the cities, for that matter, of yeah, the yeah. Philippines. And I wasn't aware that there were these barren places. Now, granted, I think they recycle a lot of these locations. I don't think we're in as many different locations as Oh, 100%. Want. It could be just a very small amount of space, too, right? Sure. It's just, yeah. But just, it's just not what I associate with the Philippines, so much so that I looked it up because I thought for a second, maybe they didn't film in the Philippines, but they did. And so uh, I, I, part of that is that it's a while into the movie before we see any Filipino actors, you know, though they are there. Uh, It's so heavy with Caucasian folks at first that I started to think like maybe Santiago traveled somewhere else to film, but no, 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 this is a Filipino production, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, I'm with you, Doug. I tend to love these movies. I actually bought a whole collection of them recently, which Mm. because of technical issues, I haven't been able to watch yet. So I'm like chomping at the bit to check them out. I don't know if they're going to be good or not, but I'm, I'm very curious. Uh, But I like a lot of the ones you mentioned, I even like some of the ones that fall outside the norm. Like I think you could argue that radioactive dreams, which we've covered sure. in a different show, but is you, that, that you genre. didn't like very much. <laughs> no, I love. What are you talking about? You're oh, thinking you, of our co-host. Oh, oh that's right. Sorry. I fucking love. In fact, someone sent me a radioactive dream sleep mask that I've thought about using, even though I don't need a sleep mask, just so I can use it. It's uh, literally a mask you wear when you go to sleep that says radioactive dreams on it. It's fucking brilliant. That's I great. love radioactive I love dreams. I hate to say, it might be my favorite Albert Pune movie, even though he's done other movies that are a little more popular. I love that movie. So uh, I like a lot of these kind of movies. I got to say, it is such a broad genre, though, Doug, that I still feel, much like with our uh, uh, Polizia Tecci uh, show, even though I've watched a chunk 
I don't feel like I know what I'm talking about yet. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know the breadth of them. Uh, similar sure. with, like, Giallo, right? I've seen, like, a bunch of Giallo movies, but there's so many Gialli that, like, how can I know them all? That's how I feel about these post-apocalyptic movies. I've seen a chunk, but I know every, you know, you could put together a trailer reel of probably, like, 50 of these movies, and chances are I've only seen five or six, you know, so. And even uh, some of the more mainstream ones are, are they're a different kind of form of post-apocalyptic, like 28 Days Later or right. The Omega Man or or even The Road or something like that. You know, I, I was going to mention Night of the Comet when uh, when I was when I was saying mine, right? I mean, th- these are very different looking movies and are less necessarily in the wake of, more specifically in the wake of Mad Max like this one is. Yeah, and what I like about this one is while it is clearly in that genealogy of Mad Max, it is borrowing from things like Star Wars or, as you also kind of mentioned, Rambo, right? There's a yeah. lot of fucking Rambo in this movie in a way <laughs> that is ridiculous, but that kind of adds to the fun. So, yeah, I'm, I hope we can cover more post-apocalyptic movies on our various shows in the future because I really enjoy them. I, I figure that that's almost certainly going to happen. I just have one question for you before we take the break, Liam, which is a lot of these movies were big in the 1980s because the Cold War was still ongoing, right? The fear of nuclear war was something that was, you know, still in everyone's mind. There were a lot of movies about that generally. And the the post-apocalyptic uh, element of these movies, as you already mentioned, it tends to be because of a nuclear weapon or a collection of nuclear weapons causing the downfall of humanity. The fear of nuclear weapons still exists, uh, don't get me wrong, but it isn't as omnipresent as it was then. But now societal collapse might take in a lot of people's minds, a different form, whether it be the collapse of capitalism or a climate change causing, you know, environmental collapse. Do you see a future where we have another collection of post-apocalyptic movies which take a little bit of a different form because of the different forms of apocalypse we may be facing? Oh, Doug, because I watch trailers on YouTube regularly, I can tell you there are at least three coming out in the next few months. Yay! <laughs> one, one with one with Jackie Chan and John Cena. Oh, I did see that trailer. Yes, that's one. There's a similar trailer for one coming out of Hong Kong, and then there's a European one that I don't know a lot about, but I watched a trailer for, and it looked stupid. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I think these move. The newer version is less sexy because it is the ridiculous caricature aspects of these movies that I'm attracted to, and maybe that makes it less fun for other people who enjoy their movies a little more serious. Right. The stupid stuff is what I like. So I like that these movies uh, in the 80s, you know, in the 80s, primarily though, some in the 70s, uh, I like how silly they were. And I like their use of like bondage gear and football pads. Like, (laughs) I think that's great. These newer ones are a little more gritty and serious. I do wonder though, sometimes Doug, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying. How long before gritty becomes camp? I think it's only a matter of time before people look back on some of our grittiest, darkest movies and go, oh, how silly, right? It doesn't feel silly now, maybe, but it's only a matter of time before that level of seriousness becomes uh, its own kind of caricature. So maybe in the future, people will look back on these kinds of movies and think they're fun. I just love the the genealogy of Mad Max films, even when it has other elements in it. I do think, though, uh, all of these movies are about, to some extent, not warnings of our impending doom, but uh, actually distractions from them. Like right. the sort of nuclear holocaust that people are talking about 
we don't have a society after that, Doug. Like this whole thing where it's like, yeah, and then we all just don't wear shirts and drive around in cool cars with spikes on them. As much as that may seem grim, that's not what's going to happen. Like we'll be lucky if there's human life left. There'll, there will be some sort of life probably left, but the chances that it's human are pretty slim, actually. And I think that's part of the problem is like whenever we dream up apocalypses uh, or, you know, that's an unfair use of that word, but uh, a societal collapse, we tend to either go for total collapse where all humanity goes away. And in some cases, that's unlikely. Or we go for some mild thing where it's like, oh, no, we don't have TV anymore. But then everything else is kind of similar. People are just mean now. That's also unlikely, right? Like, don't you think there's an element of survivalist fantasy that goes into it as 100%, well? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah, there's there's an element that that craves that post apocalypse, just like the people who crave the rapture, right? The idea that 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 there is something that we're all heading towards, and they mm-hmm. are better prepared to handle it than the general public. It's it's just it's something to keep in mind, y'all. If you go to a place that has a dinosaur exhibit, and it actually shows you the timeline of Earth. There wasn't one big uh, mass extinction event that created gas from the dinosaurs. The creatures that were here, that we call dinosaurs, that were actually a bunch of different species, there were like six mass extinction events, right? Mm -hmm. Many species have died before. And as much as we want to pretend we're special, we are a species that could stop existing. And so this idea we have where like some kind of humanity will persist, it's just kind of psychotic. We have no guarantees. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. We need to take seriously the danger in front of us and not kind of hope that, like, thanks to a zombie apocalypse, we'll all become badasses or some shit. Right, right. Well, you know, post-apocalyptic films, we love them, but they're fantasies. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about this fantasy in which there are cars and guns and lots of hair dye and moose. It's uh, 1987's Equalizer 2000. We'll be right back. Out of the wasteland comes a rebel. A rebel with a nuclear arsenal he can hold in his hand. Equalizer 2000. There's a piece of garbage out there named Lawton. I'm going to kill him if it's the last thing I do. They took his land. Want that gun. They took his girl. Now, he's taking them all straight to hell. A weapon without limits. A warrior without equal. Equalizer 2000. A ruthless vehicular gang rules the post-apocalyptic wasteland. That's until a muscled hero named Slade builds the ultimate machine gun, Equalizer (laughs) 2000, and declares a one-man war on the gang's piece of garbage leader. (laughs) It's 1987's Equalizer 2000. Uh, That's not quite accurate. Like, A... 
gang isn't quite fair. They're more like a paramilitary group that controls all the gas and everyone still drives cars for some stupid reason. So that gives him power. And also he used to be in that group. And also the guy he's most mad at isn't the leader at first, but then becomes the leader when he steals the cool machine gun, thus proving the cool machine gun was a bad idea. I, I uh, like how, just in case you're c- curious whether he's a bad guy or not, he not only wears basically an SS uniform, but he has an iron cross hanging from it. Yep. <laughs> also, the idea that, and how far is this in the future? It's like a far amount in the future, right? It's like Yeah, like 50 years. <laughs> I think they said more than that. But yeah, no, it's, it's hundreds and hundreds of years in the future. Yeah. Hundreds of years in the future. Well, it's in the year are, 2000, of course. Equalizer 2000. Hundreds of years in the future, somebody saw an iron cross in the nuclear wasteland and said, yeah, that's badass. I'm going to wear that. <laughs> Motherfucker, they're not going to remember what that means. Like, get out of here. Maybe uh, he was okay. a big Motorhead fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He was like, yeah, you know what? I really like Warzo. Lower East Side, baby. Okay. Uh, directed by Sirio H. Santiago, who we've covered before. You guys yeah. know Sirio H. Santiago. Mm-hmm. He's great. One of the legends of Filipino cinema. Mm-hmm. Uh, two writers on this one, uh, Joe Marie Avellana, uh, prolific Filipino actor and writer, uh, started out in Sierra Santiago's TNT Jackson as the villain and would work in various capacities with Santiago afterwards. Notably, he directed Spider, which we've covered on the show, um, which was re-edited into Black Belt 2, as we uh, talked about in that episode. And then also Frederick Bailey. Uh, he also wrote the similarly themed Wheels of Fire from 1985, 1986's Silk, 1992's Raiders of the Sun. I think I've seen that, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, me too, and, I think. And 1999's Shogun Cop, which also has Robert Patrick. I don't think I've ever seen Shogun Cop, but I've seen that poster a ton. A ton. Oddly, the IMDb profile doesn't have the poster in it. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. By the way, Robert Patrick, that's interesting because he's also in today's film, his second film ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie stars uh, Richard Norton, Corrine uh, Wall, who I think she's in Spring Break, right? I think she's the... In the porn video in the movie Spring Break. I know that's a random Do you know what she does for a living now, Liam? What? She's a professional tarot reader. Oh. She was a a penthouse, like a centerfold in the 1980s. And Mm -hmm. she married Ken Wall, who we've talked about a few times on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, she she later divorced him. But yeah, she was an actress for a while, a model for a while. And now she reads tarot. Crazy. Uh, Also, (laughs) as you said, Robert Patrick is in this. Uh... William Stays, Frederick Bailey, who's one of the writers, Rex Cutter, Warren McLean, Peter Shelton, Don Gordon Bell, and of course, our man, Vic Diaz. Uh, you have a note here about Richard Norton. I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I didn't recognize this guy or know anything about this dude. Uh, sure. But he's an Australian martial artist, stuntman, and actor. Um, he worked as a bodyguard for a long time before pursuing an acting career. Uh, and apparently he has a 10th degree in Zendokai, which I don't know anything about either. So there's a lot of things here I'm ignorant about. Um, his first appearance was in the 1980 uh, Chuck Norris film, The Octagon, which I think is actually underrated if you don't hate Chuck Norris. You know what I mean? Like for people who like Chuck Norris, they don't talk about The Octagon. I think it's okay. Uh, and then he appeared in a number of other martial arts films, facing off against people like Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, uh, Yasukai Kurata, Benny uh I don't know how to say that. Uh, the Benny the Jet Urquidez, I think, is how his last name is pronounced. Oh, Benny Urquidez, Don the Dragon Wilson, and Cynthia Rothrock, who I love and will always love. Yeah, he, um, he, he was he he actually has a fight against Jackie Chan in, in uh, Mr. Nice Guy, and he yes, he he was kind of like the the white actor who showed up in a lot of Hong Kong movies in the 1980s, or one of those kind of group of it. So yeah, he's had he was he was had 
he was been in a lot of Cynthia Rothrock movies, but yeah, Jackie Chan, Sammo Hung, and it also used to market movies that really starred Hong Kong actors in the United States because they could just put Richard Norton on the front of it. But like, legitimately a badass guy. He also is in a Fury Road, so that makes it another connection yes. to the yes, yes, Mad yes, Max yes, yes. universe. Uh, you can tell that he has a martial arts background in this movie because a lot of post-apocalyptic films don't have like martial arts, like hand-to-hand fighting, right? And he has a number of uh, opportunities in this movie to like kick ass and not just like run people over with his car. So uh, that's kind of fun. But we've kind of suggested that we were surprised at how much we like this film. But let's get into the nitty gritty of it, Doug. What did you think, you know, overall about Equalizer 2000? I had a lot of fun with it, more fun than I was expecting. I thought it was going to be a little more ponderous than it happened to be because it has this hero played by Richard Norton who's very much the strong, silent type. He has like a handful of lines in the entire movie. So you got nothing to work with there outside of him being this beefy dude with the frosted hair and, you know, just running around the post-apocalyptic world. But there's so much fucking action in this movie. Like, it's wild how much action there is in a 90-minute movie. There are... If you're in for it, like if I saw this movie when I was a kid, I picked it up on VHS, I would have been all in because all I'd want from it was Mad Max cars, explosions, and squibs. And this movie has tons of all of those things. So I had so much fun with the idea that that like every 10 minutes or 15 minutes or so, there'd be huge explosions all over the place, all these stuntmen running around. I will say that unlike a lot of the movies that we cover on this particular podcast, this one is not as recognizably Filipino. Which, I mean, that's part of the reason that we started this podcast is to get a little more knowledge about Filipino films and filmmaking. But that's kind of okay simply because this movie is trying to be something a little bit different. And at least there is a portion of the movie where more Filipino actors are a little more visible. But like yourself, Liam, because there aren't a lot of Filipino actors, even in the background of a lot of scenes, it feels it has not only a different feel, but it also feels like, boy, they must have flew out a lot of people in order to make it or some of these actors i guess would have been living uh in the area generally anyway but yeah i know it i think it's at least as uh impressive as the italian mad max ripoffs sure. and i enjoy yeah. a lot of those but this one I, I i don't think its reputation is as strong but i had a lot of fun with it i do want to say that the fact that this is about a gun like a super gun is such a like teenager type idea for a movie because it's like it's a super weapon in a post-apocalyptic world it's not like a nuclear weapon all it is is a machine gun that has been strapped to a shot like a shotgun and also a missile launcher or two missile launchers it's like a super gun but the idea that it's just like this weapon that can't be competed against why not just have a guy Next to a guy, one of them has a shotgun, one of them has a machine gun, and another guy has a rocket launcher. By the way, there's everyone seems to have um, bazookas. I don't understand why it's such a super weapon, but it is effective. He kills lots of people with that fucking thing. <laughs> we'll get into the, the gun. I, I want to start with, I want to acknowledge the things up front that are not great, uh, because I also was surprised by how much I like this movie. Sure. Uh, one, there are... An excessive amount of continuity issues in this in this movie, and and I mean that in two different ways. One, we meet our we meet our character. Uh, uh, what is her actual character? She's the only like real woman in the movie with a voice. Uh, Karen is the name of the character played by Kareen Wall. We meet her when she is in a deal gone wrong. She's trying to trade gasoline for rockets, uh, and these mercenaries <laughs> yeah. have stolen the rockets from. Uh, uh, so the bad gang is called the owners, right? Is that what they're called? 
I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they've stolen these rockets. They're trying to trade it, the rockets for gasoline. She ends up, it go, the, you know, it all goes awry. She's trying to get away. She ends up running from these guys after blowing her car up. And she's carrying a very small, you know, there were four containers of rockets. She gets away with one container of rockets, which I guess is enough for her whole colony. I'm not sure why she blew, blew her car up. No, none way. of that, Mac. None, none of that makes any sense. There's no reason. I'm going to get to that issue in a sec. This issue, though, Doug, is a more basic continuity issue. And it's what most people mean by continuity. She, there are lots of shots of her running away. In some shots, she has the prominent case of rockets. In other shots that are just right after those shots, there is no case of rockets. And that kind of continuity issue is the most basic kind. <laughs> and it really shows to me that like this was a rough shot production, that whenever they did the reshoots, or even maybe when they shot it the first time, somebody didn't go, oh, you're supposed to be carrying that, you gotta carry that case. Doesn't make sense if you don't have the case of rockets. And when I say shots, you might be thinking a quick cut that you wouldn't notice. Extended shots of her going up a hill <laughs> with no case of rockets. So much so that I thought, oh shit, she lost the rockets. Then they go back to the guys. Then they come back. She's got the rockets again. And I'm like, oh no, it was just a mistake. I thought I was supposed to notice that she didn't have the rockets. Like this was a tragedy. And instead it was just an error. So there are those continuity errors. There By the way, also... Liam and I are watching this like a 1080 HD version of this uh -huh, uh -huh. movie. <laughs> There's also continuity issues that are like, editing things so very early on the reason the the sort of inciting action here is that our fascists are taking on some rebels and the there's a there's a group of fascists that are sort of pinned down by the rebels and the guy that we learn is the villain instead of saving his own troops decides he's just gonna blow everyone up in the canyon by the way for no reason there's no reason for him to just nope. blow everyone up he just wants to and slate is like fuck that and he goes down to help to save but, his dad, who's also in the mix. Sure. But the issue is, because of the cutting, it's really hard to tell who's who, oh, who's yes. fighting who, Absolutely. where anyone is. And really, the only reason I could figure out that there was a betrayal going on after a few minutes of cutting was because I'm a logical movie watcher who's like, oh, they must be just blowing up everyone. Because it's not clear who they're even supposed to be blowing up. It's, it is some of the worst editing I've seen in a movie in a long time. Uh, because you lose all sense of what's happening or why it's happening. And then there are issues that aren't necessarily continuity it, it, traditionally, but they are in the sense of like, it's <laughs> unclear why things are happening the way they are. It's like there are a number of set pieces that were just decided it would be cool to blow up a car here, but it's not quite clear in the plot why that car needed to blow up or why this person needed to do this thing at this time, right? Though all three of those issues are going on and they are prevalent. I wasn't looking at this movie with a fine-tuned comb, you know, trying to figure out that these were all in a very casual watch while I was eating my lunch. I noticed all these issues. And yet, Doug, and yet, this movie is very enjoyable. And I think that is because it is so eccentric, it is so passionate about what it's doing, and it is so committed to a world that doesn't make any sense. Because here's the thing, Doug. The problem in a post-apocalyptic world is not that we couldn't find guns or even make new guns. And this even ties into the super weapon. My man has a gun that shoots uh, sniper bullets, machine gun bullets, shotguns, <laughs> grenade launcher, and missile launcher all in one gun, right? 
The issue here, Doug, is ammunition. No one ever talks about ammunition. The problem in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> world is the lack of ammunition. And my man is able to shoot five different kinds of ammunition without ever running out. He never reloads. The whole time, he never reloads. He just stands in the middle of a pit with everyone around him shooting everything, and no one can shoot him, which all he needs is one errant bullet to hit his fucking exposed chest, and he would be done, right? So, like... We're in a post-apocalyptic world where there are plenty of guns. There's plenty of ammo, apparently, of every kind. There are cars everywhere. And looking at our characters, there's also lots of hair products. Like, my man has bleached <laughs> tips, and his hair is always perfectly moved. He's in – there's no showers anywhere. There, no one is bathing. He sleeps on the ground, but his hair is always perfectly moosed bleached on the end and there are multiple scenes Doug where people are drinking beer like cold beer <laughs> yeah why do with they branded have, beer <laughs> yeah, why do they right. have cold branded beer in a there to, to be more specific for y'all these folks are living in Alaska but the nuclear holocaust was so bad that Alaska is now a desert y'all if it ever becomes true that Alaska is a desert all human life would end. Like there's no no one is alive. But that's that's where we're, we're in the deserts of Alaska. But they have cold beer. Doug, is this possibly maybe the best <laughs> you know uh, uh, nuclear wasteland that's ever existed? Like honestly, what other than TV? They kind of have everything that these people want. Really, I, I like that in a presumably a location where gasoline and oil are very very valuable. That you still have people's whose weapons are flamethrowers. I know that flame that is also throwers. consistent in the Mad Max movies as well. But like the the fact that in this movie that they and those flamethrowers, by the way, are badass and awesome. And Very there's badass. lots of people get set on fire in this. That's look the world that exists in um, this movie, which I've forgotten the name of. I know it has two thousand in the fucking title. Uh, Equalizer. The world that exists in Equalizer two thousand is not well thought out. You're exactly right. Nope. It is meant to just be, hey, remember uh, movies that have a post-apocalyptic world like this? This is the same kind of thing. I also got a little bit bothered by the idea that the rebel group seems to have just as many people as the main fascist group. So why haven't they, you know, why haven't they tried to overtake them before? It's not like it's it's millions versus thousands or even thousands versus hundreds. It just seems like both of them are just a few dozen people. <laughs> What's I, even the point of, of having a, of like a big baddie? if they don't really seem to have any more resources or power than the people that are beneath them. I think the idea is the reason so many people attack is that they've brought together a bunch of different groups. But yeah. again, not a lot of work is done. The most important part of the movie is not even this uh, idea around various disparate communities coming together to fight oppression. It's this guy's personal vendetta against the guy who screwed him over, right? Like yeah. even in the movie, he's our hero and he's like, I don't believe in politics. This yeah. is about revenge. What? This isn't a complicated political issue, man. There are some shitty assholes who have all the gas, and all the other people want the gas. It's uh, pick a side, man. Like, how is this a hard decision for you? Where you're like, I can't choose. I just have to get my revenge. It's, but just the idea that, like, the, you're right. The the ammo thing is not an issue at all, except. That the bad guys want those stolen rockets for some reason. The they really care. Rockets. They love it. They they love the stolen rocket, and then they stop caring about that when they find out this giant gun exists. And they're like, "We need this giant gun. It will turn the tide of our of the rebellion and stuff." It's like it's just, all it is, buddy, is a big gun. You got literally dozens of bazookas on your side. You don't have to worry about that gun. But man, I just love it. I love that the central thing is whoever has that gun that will turn the tide. Even at the end, when like the bad guys have the gun. <laughs> 
it's not enough to you know it doesn't really do anything for them if the I will say that the only major disappointment in this movie is how the main baddie is dispatched. He just gets shot a couple of times in the chest. Yeah, but yeah. But, but it's still, I just the fact that it's kind of a wet fart of an ending just makes me like it a little bit more. There's a real stakes going on towards the end of the movie about we can't let them get the magic gun. Then they get the magic gun, and they can't utilize it in a way that will save them from this uh, uh, unopposable force of rebellion against them. But there's not enough, I think, of a sign that the gun is not the issue. And it's also a problem because the issue then becomes Slade, right? It's not the magic gun. It's that Slade is an unstoppable killing machine, which is not any better, right? It's still He gets captured multiple times, and it's like not even a minor issue for him. No, no. Uh, Doug, I I, I brought up all those continuity issues just as a way to demonstrate this is not necessarily a – fully well-made film it's not polished (laughs) uh was there any sort of technical or even script whatever it is were there any issues with the film that people that for you took you out of the moment you know what i mean like was there any sort of thing where you thought okay this is just too stupid or that was too poorly done uh was there anything you want to bring up that like kind of maybe made the movie not as good for you yes but it is an embarrassing one which is i wish it was a little more violent Yes. It doesn't really like even the. It doesn't even get have. That's what I should say is it doesn't even really have bloody squibs until like the last half hour or so. Yeah. Uh, most of it is just very kind of a team ish violence where it's just explosions in the background, people shooting at like the the the, the fringe of of desert in front of people, that sort of thing. Just lots of gunplay, but like it's not stylized. It's not well presented necessarily. There's just a lot of it. Hey, that was enough for me to enjoy it. But, you know, I kind of wish that maybe it was a little bit more inventive and a little bit more interesting. And frankly, that is the one thing that the Italian post-apocalyptic movies have on this one, which is that they tend to eventually get to a really violent place. You'll get like a beheading or a limb getting cut off or something like that. This movie feels like it's very tame. Even right up to the inevitable sex scene in the movie, that's even kind of tame, considering that you have these very beautiful, almost certainly very badly smelling people on top of each other at one point. It's, it's, it, it feels a little sedate in regards to what it could have been, because you could see that the resources were there to make the action even bigger. But it's, it's kind of a small complaint, because it actually did deliver everything I wanted, and a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to disrespect uh Corrine Wall who you know does what she does in the movie and, and has a lot of like I actually think she's really good yeah 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 but I do think it is funny to have a movie like this in which there are so many scenes where she's just running so that her breasts can bounce like there's yeah. just shots that are fully about her body and to have it be a movie in which she doesn't get naked is kind <laughs> of I mean it, it's not just a surprise it's almost like refreshing like oh so we're not we're not going to do that? Okay, cool. That's fine. There's you the know, part whatever. like when she's about to have sex where he, he's about to take her top down and then it doesn't even you don't even get a shot of that. Like that's what she did for a living at that time period. She was a nude model. <laughs> I love it. You're right. It's it's a strange level of restraint that didn't even make any sense for the movie. Well, Roger Corman right off fucking scream being like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> I mean, maybe cuz it's Filipino of a production, so it's maybe there's a, was a little more conservatism about that sort of thing. Uh, maybe Firecracker didn't have any problem. That's with what it. I was going to say. We've seen other movies that weren't that, but maybe there was like someone who was financing it was yeah. concerned. Who knows, right? Yeah. It's hard to know. All I know is um I I as much as I kind of want more of the extremity, it was also kind of like 
almost funny how little blood and breasts there were in this movie, since that sells a lot of these other movies. Still, despite the lack of gore and what are admittedly some poorly edited scenes, it was strangely effective as an action movie, Doug, right? Like, am I crazy? Or did it just overall still feel like a fun time? Like, it works as an exciting action movie. I think it's what you were saying before. Even though it's very confused, and I was confused too in that opening scene, it is it is understandably confusing when you have really your main good guy working for the fascists at the beginning with no explanation for why that is. But once it's clear, oh, these guys are the bad guys, you have this unstoppable Schwarzenegger-esque killing machine, he's got a gigantic gun, he's got these rebel guys who are supposed to be the good guys behind him, you even have that you know, Lord of the Rings bit where they there, there's another more uh, simplistic, I guess in some way, what I should say is that they are the native group in the area, and they don't have any allegiance to anybody, but because they're shown kindness by our hero, that later they come to help as well. And that'll play into our discussion on Vic Diaz in a little bit. Just these little things that all fit together. It keeps things simple. It never tries to get too complex. It never tries to get too far into the politics. It doesn't talk about, hey, are there what happened to the rest of the world? Are there major cities? No, it's all these little enclaves. And frankly, like you were saying at the very beginning... There's a little eccentric parts like Robert Patrick's performance, who I think he's the best thing in this movie. He's so much fun. He's this kind of wild. He's wearing like one of those um, uh, Civil War hats. He's 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 kind of a dickhead, but he's always thinking. He's trying to keep himself alive. I think he's a lot of fun in it. And uh, and that's, you know, overall, I think people are showing a little more personality than you normally see in these kind of movies. I agree. I think that's what it part of what it is, is how invested each of these characters is with their own vibe yeah and 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 it's that kind of spectacle as well as some of the more ridiculous parts like the idea that like you know uh uh kareen you know that 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 uh karen um is in a world where there's like beer and guns and ammo and and metal working and oil refinery there's no bras though right like, no. she couldn't possibly uh I, you know that's that's like that's sort of like it's silly but it's also kind of funny or this dude's hair like my man can't wash his face but his hair is fucking perfect the whole yeah. movie it is so moosed it is so bleach blonde it is great it's great that that's a detail they cared about you know like those things that are technically silly actually add to the fun character of the movie. I want to talk about the gun a little more. Just, yeah, let's just talk about to, the gun. Because we it. talked about it at the end of our last episode, the, the image on the poster of the gun and how ridiculous it is. It's literally just a gun that they glued various barrels to. So you could tell it did multiple things. And in the movie, he's shooting machine gun bullets. He's blowing shit up. It's it's just a bunch of explosions and, and squibs and stuff and whatever. How cool is the gun, Doug? Talk to me about the gun. Did you feel like the gun is the MacGuffin that this movie needed? I will say it's not as cool looking in person as it is on that particular poster. There's two main posters for this. Both of them feature the gun very heavily. The one that we have in our notes is wild looking. It makes it look like no human could possibly carry it. In person, it's still pretty cool looking because it's not just pipes, right? It is, each one does fire. Like this is a working prop gun that's the other thing there's so many blanks that were using this it's like you see the muzzle fire all muzzle fire all throughout it it's not like this is just a bunch of like people going bah, 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 with with uh, sound effects someone went to the ever there's pyrotechnics all the way through this and this is a gun that in some way as a special effect functions so it is cool in the way that a super gun would be cool if it was just a really 
big gun that had one barrel that shot a really big projectile, that would be cool too. It doesn't need to be this particular thing. I think the fact that it's so ludicrous looking adds to the fun. So in that case, I, I think it's pretty pretty cool. I agree. It It is fun. I want to, before we get directly into Vic Diaz, let's talk a little bit about this mountain people thing. So for y'all yeah. to understand, this is a Filipino production. The only Filipino actors really, though there's a big battle scene where there's a couple sort of intermixed. Yeah. But for the most part, we only see the Filipino actors as these quote unquote mountain people. Now, this is set in Alaska, so I think these are meant to be Inuits, and some of their oh, cost- interesting, yeah, yeah, and some of their costuming is actually more similar to Inuits, except for the headbands that they wear, which kind of look like the headbands that Filipino martial artists or even Muay Thai martial artists wear. You know, the the sort of rolled rope headband. Yeah, so it's absolutely. like it's it's sort of a mix of symbols. There's some Filipino stuff, uh, there's some Inuit stuff, and then one of the chiefs is literally wearing a Native American necklace that does not make sense because Inuits are not the same as whatever uh, Native American group made that necklace. So there is some confused imagery here, but I think they're supposed to be Inuits. Um, Is this a problematic decision or does this just kind of make sense? I couldn't decide for myself. I don't think there's one clear answer in regards to that. I will say at least they're treated with respect in the sense they're that kinda they're kind of cool, actually. They're cool, right? And there's a mystical element to them as well, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in just a second. And they're meant to be, you know, people who have, like the indigenous peoples in Canada and the United States, in some way they've been sectioned off and have used that as, you know, even though they were forced into that situation, use that to create a community that is insular, but also has a unique knowledge and unique uh, talents and skills. And I think that that's cool that the movie recognizes that. And then later in the movie, it's like, look, it's not the gun that's important. It's whoever these guys, whoever these guys decide to bond with, that's going to be the thing that turns the tide. And that is kind of an unspoken thing in the movie, but that's what happens in the last act. And I think that that's pretty neat as well. I think it's definitely somewhat problematic, but the fact that they're never labeled as any particular group and the fact that they don't, um, even though they speak in sort of magical language, they're not speaking in stilted tones like a uh, problematic indigenous person in the 1950s or 60s. I agree. There is a bit of like a, a, a mysticalness and like, to be quite honest, I think post-nuclear attack, I think uh, Inuits or any other native group would be like, yeah, I'll take a gun. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. Oh, that's the other thing. They don't. Yeah, they don't carry guns. They all have no, spears. No, they only and, and use spears bows and, arrows. and bows and arrows. And that felt a little like I think they would take a gun. I think at this point, when the world is over, it's a little hard to imagine that they'd be like, "Nah, I'm good. I don't need a gun." You know? What well, I mean? maybe like, if but, it was a world like would make a little more sense where ammo was really difficult to come exactly, by. But exactly. In this exactly. this movie, that does not seem to be the case. Yeah. yeah. But I do like that they kind of, even though this is a little like stereotypical that we have to be saved by the native folks, I do think in this case, it makes sense, right? Because really, as much as I don't think any of these rebel groups are, you know, necessarily super open-minded progressive types, there's really only one group that sucks, and that is the gas Nazis. And so everyone banded together to fight the gas Nazis is pretty great, especially because there's no indication why the gas Nazis are gas Nazis other than they're like... The only way for us to oppress people is to have all the gas. So let's just do yep. that. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the whole motivation, which is fine. I'm not saying that is 
bad writing because the whole movie is ridiculous but it is fun to be like yeah these guys really suck <laughs> i love how i love the the idea that like when they conscript robert patrick's gang into their gang uh they're like we're not gonna kill you you gotta help us double rations for your men <laughs> i just like that it's like rat you get more food so that's a way to control people right but it's also yes. kind of both accurate but very kind of by the books it's like double rations extra rations for you guys yeah Okay, let's let's talk about the man who brought us here, Vic Diaz. The star of this movie? <laughs> yeah. We I, am I correct that we only see him in one scene? Or was two does scenes. he show up later? Oh, two scenes, yes. Two se- there's there's one main scene, but when the uh the indigenous group show up at the top of the hill, like the big line of them, we do get one close up and he's there in front of them. Yes, 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 yes. It's unclear is is he meant to be their religious leader and the other guy's the chief? <laughs> I think so. No, he's not the chief. I think the other guy is definitely so. I mean, chief. We're just using words here, but the sure. guy who, who runs t- the show. There are two people in charge, but only one seems to actually be in charge, and the other one, Vic Diaz, seems to lounge about and throw things into a fire I, that explode. I, 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 I believe the other leader, by the way, is played by Joe Marie Avellana, the the other writer. On I agree. This. Uh, I agree. I yeah. Think so, that's right. so he's. He's kind of the main guy that we see as a representative of this indigenous group. People come to say, you know, they, they go to their group and say, look, can you join the fascists? Can, the, the fascists want them to join them. The rebels are like, can you join the rebels? And they're like, no, we're staying out of it. But then there's that one scene where the fascists, fascists show up and then Vic Diaz is just sitting there, right? And this is like 80% of the way into the movie and suddenly Vic Diaz just shows up. And what's he doing, Liam? <laughs> uh, he's reclining and throwing things into a fire for effect. I think he might be thro- throwing something that turns into fire. Oh, because he, he says something like, fire? we don't need oil. We can make our own fire. Oh, so maybe it's like whale blubber or something? I don't I know. know. Who, fuck. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 that's he, where well, I got the idea. What of he specifically says is, we don't fear the winter. That's which right. I thought, Which I thought was funny because I had already had the thought, are these supposed to be fucking Inuits? And, cause I, I hope like, that they were are Inuit only because I'd like to think that that's just another nationality that Vic Diaz has played because there's no other yes, opportunity for yes. Inuit roles. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's an effective scene because what it's meant to communicate is um, they don't trust all these fucking white people, which I think right. is the right inclination. Absolutely. And they don't feel oppressed by this group because they kick their ass all the time and they're not, they don't need the gas. And that's like sort of one of the things about the movie that isn't thought through, which doesn't ruin the movie, but it is worth pointing out. You could just not have gas, right? Like people have lived without gas for a long time. Now I think in this case, we don't see a lot of trees. So there is a question of how are they going to get through a winter without something Mm -hmm. to keep them warm? But assuming there might be some trees, since there seems to be structures that aren't just made of metal, you just burn the trees, right? Like I, I th- this thing where it's like, well, you couldn't possibly survive without gas is very weird because like they only need the gas for the war machines, really. I don't really think they need the gas for much else. They don't have gas heaters, right? So why do they need the gas so bad? It, for their flamethrowers. <laughs> it's very weird. It's very weird. So, yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. again, it's not that distracting. I don't think you're going to worry about it while you're watching this movie. But it is funny how, like, when they said it, like, what do we need the gas for? I was like, yeah, that's fucking right. Like, what, what, why would you still build a society post-apocalypse where you're like, well, we got everything we need except gas. We still yeah, need that yeah. fucking gas. <laughs> Yo, find a way around the gas. We did it for a long time, y'all. I, I think you could figure it out. So, anyways, uh, yeah, but, I, you know, I got to say, 
It's a small scene, Doug, but it's a memorable scene. And that is sort of the story with Vic Diaz. Yeah. In most of the movies we've watched, even when he's only on screen for a little bit of time, my man owns the screen, but he's on it. And this is one of those cases. Yeah, th- it definitely is. It, I tell you, this is one of those situations where it's like he shows up and you're like, oh, yeah. Like, it's so good to see him because everybody else is like you see them all the way throughout the movie. He legitimately only has that one scene and just appears in another one. It almost like it's almost like it's a little bit of an Easter egg for fans of him and his collaborations with Sergio Santiago. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's there are probably people who at this point, if they were familiar with Santiago's movies, might have been waiting for him to show up. So when he does show up, it's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, there you go. Uh, you know, I, I I guess if you are someone who doesn't love post-apocalyptic films, I would not recommend this. But for people who are on board with these kind of movies, I was surprised how solid this was and how much fun I was having with it. And maybe I'm a, b- a bit biased because we've covered some terrible things recently, but... I just thought this was a good time, Doug, and I would recommend it to people. Yeah, I think so. I, and A, it's very easy to find in a good-looking version. It's actually streaming on Tubi right now as well. I'm very curious to check out Wheels of Fire. I can't remember if Vic Diaz is in that one. It's also directed by Sergio Santiago, same uh, same writer here, uh, because I think it's this is sort of a sequel to that movie. It has the same kind of fascist group at its core. I don't know if it's, most, it's meant to connect in any other way. But yeah, I enjoyed this one, so uh, it makes me a little bit more enthusiastic for uh, the, the many other Filipino-shot post-apocalyptic movies that were made in the 1980s that may or may not feature Vic Diaz. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, well, thanks for listening to us talk about this movie. On our next episode, we're going to be talking about 1976's Project Kill, a former government assassin flees a mind control program in the Philippines, pursued by his ex-partner, the local police, and Asian gangsters. <laughs> Featuring Vic Diaz as Alok Lee. Uh, I, I'll be honest, Doug, I've never even heard of this movie before, but this poster looks badass. It's a badass poster, and it does show that one of the stars of the film is Canada's own Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey Doug, uh, if people want to hear more of us yapping our gums about Vic Diaz or other people, uh, you know, wh- where would they find some of that? Well, you can always find the newest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord over at Cinepunks.com, which also has a wonderful collection of other podcasts and also lots of recent written work as well, including reviews from the Fantasia Film Festival. Check that out on Cinepunks.com or on social media under the name Cinepunks, including on Instagram, on Twitter, etc. If you want to just check out the most recent episode of Cinema Smorgasbord as well as all of our archived episodes, you can do that over at Cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can have links to where you can subscribe to the podcast. You can leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice, or why don't you just tell a friend about Cinema Smorgasbord. We have podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Carol Kane, Jackie Chan, uh, Dick Miller, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Paul Bartel, and of course Vic Diaz. Many more over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm no longer on Twitter. I've been banned for all time, but I do tweet through the Cinema Smorgasbord uh, Twitter account, which is at cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Thanks again for listening, y'all. We really appreciate the support, and until next time, stay alive in the wasteland. And keep your hair very moosed. Good night. Deborah, Deborah, 
Let's go, me. 